Okay, well, praise the Lord, hallelujah, and thank you, Jesus. What is around that time right here on KAZ Radio, where I have one of my most favorite shows, none other than Christian Networking Entrepreneurs with Pastor Teresa McCurry. How you doing, Pastor T? I'm doing wonderful, Apostle. How about yourself? Great, thanks. Thank you for having us. So we're excited to be here on CNE, Christian Networking Entrepreneurs. As you all know, Christian Networking Entrepreneurs is for emerging entrepreneurs, small business owners, and community leaders. And today we have a community leader that has been leading in the community for a very long time. Help me in welcoming our guest, Councilman Matt Zone. Councilman Zone, welcome to the show. Pastor T, it's my pleasure uh, to be with you. It's always great to be in the presence of you. I always feel one step closer to God when I'm on <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> so I'm excited to have you on as well. I know you've been busy and been doing a lot of things and doing a great work in our community. So we're just going to dive on in. So in the beginning, we always ask our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves where they've been, their journey, what they've accomplished, what they've been exposed to. Now, we don't want the um, watered-down PG version. We want to <laughs> know all the right stuff that got you to where you are today. And then I, I'll ask you some questions in between. All right. I, I appreciate that. Well, Pastor T, you know, I, I'm a lifelong Clevelander, born and raised here on the near west side in the Detroit Shoreway Gordon Square neighborhood. Second youngest of nine children. Uh, our parents uh, grew us. Uh, we were raised in a, a large, loving family. Um, and I have uh, five sisters, and uh, I'm one of four boys. Uh, fortunately, a couple of my siblings have passed on, so has my mother and my father. But, you know, they were real trailblazers in their own right, and they really wanted to empower their children when they. Um, when we were growing up that we had to give back and get involved in the community. It wasn't something that was um, encouraged. It was almost something that was required. You know, mom wanted to make sure when you were a young person, you know, all my sisters, we did the whole active, you know, get involved in social clubs and, and, and uh, Cub Scouts and Girl Scouts and Rotary Clubs, uh, staying busy uh, at our school. And early on, you know, that foundational work, I think, really helped and led to um, a lot of great things that some of my siblings have um, gone on to do. You know, my, my uh, parents uh, grew up during the Depression, so woven into uh, a household of, uh, of nine kids and, and, and the parents, 11 people, uh, frugality was really important. Uh, we didn't waste anything. Uh, my mom, um, if we had dinner and there was one pork chop left over and five uh, green beans, those were frozen and they were <laughs> in, the, in the freezer for, for another meal. Um, and, and so, you know, those types of little things that our parents did, I think, really uh, uh, helped the values uh, that, that I embrace and hold dearly today. Um, you know, my, I was only 11 when my father passed away. Uh, I, I want to just speak a little bit about my my father because people might recognize his name. Uh, my dad um, is Michael J. Zone. Uh, he was uh, an amazing individual. Uh, he was in college at John Carroll University at the time, just before World War II struck. And then when World War II came, 
Uh, since he was in college, uh, he enlisted into the Army. He didn't wait to be drafted, and he went. He felt it was his calling um, and did a couple years in there uh, dating my mom long distance and uh, became a forward observer. And his one of his jobs was he was supposed to go lay out the terrain of different areas where uh, some of the um, conflict was going to occur. Well, he got captured during, uh, just before the Battle of the Bulge in, in France by Normandy. And he was taken to a concentration camp in Germany called Bad Orb, O-R-B, Bad Orb, B-A-D-O-R-B. And he was taken there in, um, in November. Uh, this is a Christian network, so I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about how God helped him survive. Amen. My, father, my father was uh, a devout Christian, uh, a devout Catholic. He uh, felt it was important that he went to Mass every single day. Um, again, values he passed down to his children. And uh, during that whole time while he was in, uh, as, held as a prisoner of war in Germany, uh, he could never uh, go to go to go to mass. He could never take holy communion. He could never read scripture, and uh, that really bothered him. And sure enough, as World War II was coming to an end, it was on of all days. The irony here it's just bone chilling. Um, it was on Good Friday wow. when uh, General Patton's troops came into this part of Germany. They took over the camp. He was liberated during that time. What my father didn't know is he made friends with this French guy. Unbeknownst to him, it was a French uh, friar, a priest. And on Good Friday, uh, that French priest said mass, uh, a non-denominational mass for those who were present. Um, and it was very cathartic for, for my father. Uh, when he went into war, um, he was about 185 pounds a day. He liberated, he was 135 pounds. Mm -hmm. So they basically starved him. He lost 60 pounds over the course of six months, uh, had a lot of health uh, symptoms as a result of that starvation. But the one thing that kept him alive was his mind and his faith. Yeah. And he always had dreamt about uh, someday coming home, being reunited with this sweetheart, who was my mom, and having this big family. And one of the most precious uh, heirlooms I have is my mother gave me my father's actual diary that he had with him in World War II. And he wrote daily transcriptions in there. Like, you know, I woke up today, the sun was shining, there was still nothing to eat. And then it's the next day and the next day. But in there, he tells a story about how he wanted to come home and marry the love of his life and have a big family. And sure enough, they had many kids. <laughs> that's, a, that's exactly what he did. He prophesied what he was going to That's amazing, Matt. That's an amazing story. You should write a book. <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, it's funny you said that because when my mom, who's no longer with us, she passed away in uh, 2005. But for her 80th birthday, all the siblings, we pooled our money together and we gave her as a Christmas gift. We hired an, uh, uh, an author who wrote a book about my mom, who was an extraordinary woman, Mary's own. Oh. And it's titled My Way. Uh, and 
many stories in there from all the time from the period of my mom being a young child to the time growing up uh, I had mentioned to you that I was only 11 when my father passed away so my mom was a widow with four kids 18 and under still uh, you know the older siblings they had moved on and um, just so for your viewers uh, know a little bit about my commitment to public service and my family's commitment my father was a councilman for the city of Cleveland from 1960 until he passed away tragically uh, in June of 1974. He was just a couple years younger than I am now. And at that time, um, it was a sudden heart attack. Uh, the doctor thinks it was a lot of stress that occurred okay. as a result of his starvation and war and the stress and the scar tissues put on. But at that time, um, my father had passed away. Uh, George Forbes was the Cleveland City Council president. Uh, he knew my family very well. Um, and uh, in fact, his daughter, Helen and I are the same age and we've been friends our whole lives. And so George Forbes, Mr. Forbes then, one day came over to my house with uh, several days after my father passed away, after the burial of my father, and sat down with my mom. Uh, he came over to our house with a, a gentleman named Arnold Pinckney and uh, said to my mom, he said, Mary, you know, there's a year and a half left on your husband's council term. We, we think you should fill out the balance of his term. Um, and my mom was like a reluctant politician. She was like, no, I don't know. I, I need to discuss this with my family. So I remember that following Sunday, we had a big, uh, Sunday dinner with all my siblings around the table and we all said ma you have to do it just finish out that term and so my mom I think reluctantly said she would and then she served on Cleveland City Council and subsequently went to win several elections and served from 1974 to 1981 so my dad was elected in 60 he passed away in 74 and then my mom served from 74 to 1981, uh, about 20, almost 22 years total between the two of them. Wow, so it's in your blood, it's in your DNA. When you were talking about, you know, the foundation and what your family brings to you, that is so important because as a kid, you don't realize that you're being molded. You're just living your life. This is just what we do. This is our life. And I think about that for myself, even with entrepreneurship. So, you know, growing up, my mom, back in the day, they called it a hustler. <laughs> my mother was a hustler. Now I'm an entrepreneur, right? So I got that hustling DNA inside of me. So that's the foundation for it. You know, it's just what you do. So you don't even think about it. So counsel people, running your family, serving the community runs in your family. You don't even think about it. It's just what you do. That's it's right. just what you do. Yeah. But then... I, but I know, but I know another side of you. But so just say what you're gonna say, and then we're gonna talk about that other side. Go ahead. Well, hold that other side because maybe we could segue in there. Um, you know, I, I somewhat consider myself a hustler too. And uh, you know, when you grow up in a family of nine, you have to be somewhat of a hustler. Um, uh, my mom, I always would say, she loved all of her kids. She had to love some of her kids more than others. You know, and, and that really gets to the equity issue that we're all trying to grapple with today in society. It's not equality. It's not giving 
a fair share to everyone because everyone doesn't need the equal share. That's right. And my mom and my mom realized that as well. But growing up, I was always an independent person. I was easy to make friends. I'd go off and do my own. And I remember I had my first job when I was 12, you know, delivering the paper and I was cutting grass and I was shoveling snow. I was a hustler. I was all Me about too. <laughs> That's the same. And people be like, you? I'm like, I didn't turn into a girl till I got 15. I had all brothers. I'm the only girl. So I, my brothers carry bags at the grocery store. I carry bags at the grocery store. My brothers had a paper route. I had a paper route. My brothers shovel snow. I shovel snow. So everything my brothers did, I did. Yeah. So my mom said, you know, you're doing all these things uh, and you really need to get involved in the community. And right around um, uh, 1981, uh, just as my mom was coming off of city council, uh, the new rec center was built at West 65th and Lorraine. Uh, former former mayor, George Voinovich, uh, dedicated and named that rec center after my father, which was a high honor. But then I started um, volunteering there as a youth counselor and working with kids because I love kids and and that morphed into a whole new uh, different thing for me with uh, working with youth and, and, and improvisation and dance and different things like that. So um, I've always considered uh, Pastor T myself a hustler as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing. So I know that um, Michael Zone Rec Center is right around the corner from our church. Mm -hmm. So sometimes when we have big events, we even park over there at mm -hmm. the Michael J Zone Rec Center. And it's really a blessing to the community. Mm -hmm. All the things that the Rec Center does for the community and allows the community to have is really a wonderful thing. So that's an awesome legacy for your family to have that, to be able to be a blessing to so many people moving forward. And then I know that you, as your youth counselor, was that when you started your B-boy days? Let's talk about your B-boy days and then we'll get into our shove jig for today. Sure, well, for, for <laughs> those who are viewing this segment who aren't familiar with uh, the rec center, um, it's on uh, the, the uh, southeast corner of West 65th and Lorraine and Pastor T's church is on the southwest corner of West 65th and Lawn. So literally just one block north of, of the rec center um, is New Life Ministries and you do amazing work in our community. We're so thankful for you and Apostle Greg. You do so much for our community. But yeah, as when I was a youth counselor, I um, was trying to figure out how do I keep these young kids, primarily young boys, how did I keep them active and busy? Well, my mother, um, right after I graduated in, in June uh, from high school, she sent me to New York City where my brother Marty was living. And she said, look, I want you to spend a week with him and just, so you know, a bonding opportunity. Because I was, at that time, I was living at home with three girls. You know, she's like, get away, get to New York, be with your older brother. And, uh, you know, here she's a, a widowed wife and um, wants me to bond with some family members. So I go to New York. My brother Marty was uh, an actor. He was living in the East Village. And I just noticed, um, you know, how vibrant the city was. And he told me, he says, you really want to see uh, what New York's all about? Go down, a what, go down to 42nd Street. It's like 42nd Street. He goes... It's world, you know, you'll see so many amazing Everything. things. Everything. Well, 
I did, and I went to 42nd Street, and I happened to see kids, and they were dancing. They were dancing on a street corner, but they were dancing on cardboard. They were break dancing, and it blew my mind. And I said, you know what? I've always been very gifted athletically, and and you know when you're the youngest uh, boy of of nine siblings, you got you know four older sisters. I knew how to dance at an early age, so I was like. I'm going to do this. And I'm so down with be, you know, hip hop. And so I, I started uh, uh, practicing break dancing, formed uh, my own break dancing crew right there at the rec center. That was our home base. We did all our practicing there. And through my youth counseling, I was getting into really deep into Cleveland's neighborhoods. Primarily I was uh, doing counseling at uh Lakeview Terrace and Riverview Terrace housing projects. And I met some young people there uh, who are also interested in break dancing. So I formed a regular session where uh, five days a week, I had a room reserved for two hours at a time. I'd bring a big uh, boom box. <laughs> and uh, we'd just put mixtapes in after mixtapes and the kids would come there. And then next thing we know, we formed our crew and uh, we were extremely successful where we went on to win many awards and we, uh, we were together as an active group performing for about almost eight years. And what was the name of your crew again? So our crew was called Project Five. Okay. And uh, it, we landed on that name because the original foundation of the group was, was five B-boys, but we came across this great mixtape mix uh, on this album, and it was the name of the gr uh, group that was performing it was called Project Five. I was like, well, there's five of us, and we love dancing to this track, so that's, uh, we named our crew Project Five as a result. That's so fun and so cool. I love to hear that story because it reminds me. I said Matt Zone was a b-boy, and I was a lady rapper back in the day. So that's awesome, awesome, fascinating story. So let's get into our topic for today. I'm not super sure if you are still the president of the National League of Cities. Are you still the president? I am not the pre I am now, uh, I have the title of immediate past president. Um, okay. Oh, look, I'll hold up my little, I just <laughs> that card right there. So. So when did you stop being the president? So I um, uh, became, uh, uh, I, uh, my term ended in December 31st of 2018 so okay. for all of 19 and the way our organization is structured so I'll just tell your listeners a little bit about the National League. Yeah tell them what it is and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Sure so it is the chamber organization that represents local government elected leaders so every mayor and council member in the United States is a member of this association. There's approximately 120,000 mayors and council members in the United States. And so I um, uh, became very fascinated with the organization. Uh, they work on a lot of policy and there's only been one other Clevelander in the 95 year history to be president of the or that organization and that was Mayor George Voinovich in 1985. And it's a rarity that uh, a council member actually ascends to be the president. Typically, it's mostly mayors. mayors, and so, but I had a leg up coming from a big city, being a councilman, and uh, 
So I, I've been now uh, the immediate past president for two years because the way our charter is written, you must be in an elected position in order to serve in that leadership position. Well, the person who was president last year lost her reelection campaign. Oh. Uh, an amazing woman, Mayor Karen Freeman Wilson, who's the mayor of Gary, Indiana. She grew up with uh, uh, with the Jackson Five. She knows them all, you know, they're right from her hometown. She is now, uh, so she lost her reelection campaign. And so now for a whole nother year, I'm a media past president. But she landed softly on her feet. She's now the president and CEO of the Urban League for Chicago, right. uh, which is the second largest urban league in the United States. Cool beans, cool beans. So we, we've been on this call for almost 20 minutes, and we haven't said anything about this pandemic that we're, we're in right now. So I want to hear your take on that, and how is it affecting your duties as a councilman? Sure. Well, first up, you know, I want to say to your listeners, um, it's a scary time. It's okay if you're a little scared, but know that there's a lot of people out there who love and support you. You might not even know that, but they're there. Um, you need to reach out to people like Pastor T or, or contact my office if you need some services. Uh, we're trying to just be reassuring to people. These are very, very uncertain times. And fortunately, the response that um, our city has done with uh, creating a, an emergency declaration, uh, allowing the city to be more nimble in how we purchase um, uh, and procure items, how we create programs to help people um, is really been helpful. I think Governor DeWine has done an overall good job. He but there are, lot, there are a lot of people out there who are hurting, Pastor mm -hmm. T. And I know that we started a small grant program where we give a 0% interest loan to small businesses in the city of Cleveland. Well, in the first week, we uh, put a million dollars into that fund. And in the first week, it was oversubscribed. Uh, just in the war that I represent, we had over 22 uh, businesses that filed for that money. Now, if all 22 of them get that funds, you know, that's one fifth of the total pool of money that's in there. So one of the things that the city were thinking is maybe replenishing and putting more money in there. Uh, that's just one illustration of what the city overall is doing to help businesses. But my office, you know, we, we've we really had to reinvent ourselves. I have uh, a full-time executive assistant and they have another individual who's in our neighborhood advocate. She works 30 hours a week. We do bi-weekly uh, Zoom conference calls with the three of us. So we're uh, practicing, you know, appropriate physical distancing. Uh, uh, but we're still answering calls in real time. They're getting returned. The calls are being checked every 30 minutes. Emails are being returned instantly. Uh, I know yesterday uh, my assistant was struggling with um, dealing with a senior who was shut in, getting groceries to them. You know, these are just some of the little things we do. Uh, last week I was dealing with um, an individual who was um, – he was from, uh, he was a Somali and his landlord was a Somali and he was trying to evict this individual, but he didn't know that the governor issued this order that you can't evict people. So we had to reach out to somebody who could speak the language and run interference. 
And that's what council people do. We're kind of like connectors and trying to connect the dots of all the resources that are out there in the community. Uh, but it's been a it's been a real challenge, Pastor T. Yeah, it's been a challenge for us too. Um, and like you said, in our community, we have I don't know if the proper term is refugees. Yeah, we have a lot of refugees. So we have people that come to our food bank that speak Spanish. So thank God we have like Spanish speaking volunteers that come and help out. We have Somalians that come and you know, we have, so it's, 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 it makes it even that much more difficult when you have the language barrier, right? And then you're just trying to service the people the best that you can. But I would say, you know, during this pandemic, what I see is the people's resilience. Right. People are totally resilient. And like you say, reinventing yourself, making it happen. Even this show, we normally go into the studio. We have to do it via Zoom. Christian Networking Entrepreneurs is a networking organization. It's an outreach of New Beginnings Ministries, but we normally meet and network and shake hands and pass out business cards. So we got to think of how we're going to reinvent this whole process so we don't have to stop. But that that's important to give hope to people to let them know that there will be another side of this. It's amazing that you started off talking about your family and how your parents lived through the Great Depression. So, you know, one of the things I think about when things happen, we make it through to the other side. So it's like you just go through with joy and peace and, and with us, our faith. Our faith is what gives us the strength to continue on. So what do you want to talk about? I know I wanted to mention the National League of the Cities. What do you have on your agenda for us to discuss today? Well, you know, I'm really trying to, to be present in the community, even though okay. we can't be around people. Um, there's a couple of initiatives I'll get to in a bit that, that I've been working on citywide uh, you know just yesterday uh, there was a or not yesterday two days ago there was a big news story about how the city of Cleveland is not doing a very good job dealing with their recycling materials oh yeah I've seen that I've seen that you saw that Pastor T yeah and they said that you know all the recycling is going into one land bank you know we got the green can we got the blue can and we taking the time to recycle but then it's all going into one kit and caboodle Exactly. So, you know, when I saw that story two days ago, you know, early yesterday morning, I sent a long uh, letter to um, or email to the mayor's chief of staff and several people in the administration and said, you know, this isn't right. We got to do it better. So the mayor's office put out a press release yesterday in response to how they're going to handle dealing with recyclable materials. Uh, but again, I have to be, council people are the advocate of the community. And I had, I can tell you, yesterday I probably received at least a half a dozen phone calls and at least a half a dozen emails and communication, not to mention all the people who tagged and po tagged me on Facebook about the, that story, like, what are you doing about it? And it consumed a lot of my time. I would much more rather be helping people, working with people than responding to um, something that that uh, we should be doing anyways. Yeah. So where where did the um, breakdown come with the recycling? What happened? Yeah. No. Great question. Um, you know the commodities market is changing. China was buying everything. They were buying all the papers, the metals, and the plastic. We were shipping them over in big containers. You know, container uh, ships to China. 
and then they were recycling all that material and using it. Well, um, a couple of things uh, that impacted the city of Cleveland. One, China closed its borders and said, we've taken the world's plastic and paper and, and metal. We don't need any more. We're good. So they quit buying them. And the other thing is the city of Cleveland, the way we do recycling, it's called single stream. You have two garbage cans. You got the black garbage can that you can put in any garbage. And you got the blue garbage can with the recyclable logo where you're supposed to put plastic, metal, and paper. Well, um, over 80% of the garbage that was being picked up was considered contaminated. For example, like a, a paper, uh, a pizza box. People think, oh, it's paper, right? It should get recycled. Well, no, that grease steps in. All of that stuff goes in there. Uh, pizza boxes are not recyclable. And so now it contaminates it. And when you pour other stuff in there, you know, when they're picking up the recyclable material, sometimes you could have paint cans in with paint. Well, that now just contaminates all the other products in there. So as a city, again, we were doing a poor job. Citizens were doing a poor job of recycling. And we need to do better, not only as a city, but we need to do better as a community and make sure that we're following the proper guidelines. I'm hopeful and optimistic that the recycling program will come back. Right now we're collecting everyone's waste and we're still taking it. So that's not a problem, uh, but, but, but the recycling is a big issue. Yeah, so even with that, I didn't know that. So, you know, I think that um, the community probably needs to be more educated on how to recycle. You know, what is recyclable just because it's paper or a, car a cardboard box, if it has these grease and all of that stuff on it, then that makes it contaminated and it's thus not recyclable. I didn't know that. So I just learned something right there. So I think that maybe some of the programs going forth should be some kind of education. What is recyclable? If I had a water bottle and I put oil in it, you know, then I put it in there, then that makes it not recyclable. So I think that that's, that would be something that should be probably added to the agenda of educating the community on how to recycle. I think we think we know, but clearly we don't. Well, you know, it's the young people. They're the ones who are going to change this planet. I can remember when the seatbelt seat law came into effect, uh, you know, it was hard for us to adapt and say, wait, I have to put a seatbelt on? Uh, but, you know, having that reminder when you have the young person sitting in the back seat saying, hey, mom, dad, put on your seatbelt. Uh, you know, our son was uh, real good at reminding his parents to do that. And we need to get into the schools. We need to educate these young people because I'll tell you, the best recyclers in my house were always my son and my wife. Mm -hmm. They would always be on me. Dad, you can't do that. You gotta do this. And so now as uh, funding and resources have been diminished in our school system, uh, I don't know if that's part of the curriculum and education. Um, you know, all schools aren't equal and sure. some educate differently, but. I believe it's our young people that can help pull us through this. Me too. I think that's awesome. So I know that me doing my research, that you have a heart for EPA. You have a heart for environmental protection agencies, issues, and things. So yeah. tell my viewing audience two things. What is the EPA? And sure. then two, what's your track on, on the EPA? Okay. Well, um, 
city of Cleveland has a real unique relationship with the EPA. It stands for the Environmental Protection Agency. And um, I will give credit to two men for the creation of the EPA. One, Carl Stokes. When he was mayor of our city, he, he was fed up that we had a, a, a river that was dead, that people were pouring gasoline and oil and garbage in it. Um, and, uh, and we had a lake that was in the process of dying where people didn't want to go swimming in there. I mean, the lake literally was dying. You couldn't fish in it. You couldn't eat the fish out of it. I mean, at the, at the time when he was mayor, his older brother had just got elected to Congress, Louis Stokes. And through um, Carl, former Mayor Carl Stokes' advocacy around how contaminated the river was, and then when our river caught on fire in 1969, it made, you know, Time Magazine, you know, Johnny Carson was poking fun of the city of Cleveland. There was a lot of not only national but international um, understanding that the city of Cleveland had some real environmental issues. So um, Carl Stokes went to Washington, um, his brother Louis Stokes uh, convened a special hearing and he testified and said, you know, it's a duty and responsibility of America that we leave our planet in a better place to the next generation. And that effort led into the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency in 1972. And it also led to the creation of the Clean Water Act in 1972, which regulated how you dispose of um, garbage and debris and you can't pour it down. Um, you know, sometimes people change their oil uh, and say, oh, just dump the used oil down the, the sewer drain. Yeah. Well, that sewer drain, that water gets treated. That gets recycled, it gets put back into Lake Erie. If people put junk into that, and that junk gets into the lake, and then we drink that water from the lake, yeah. we put that junk in our bodies. Yeah. So um, to, to, to answer your question, it was really two people, both Clevelanders, uh, both amazing people, uh, Carl and Louis Stokes, who grew up you know, in Cleveland, uh, in humble means, and rose to uh, international prominence for their work. Yes. So what is your work with the EPA right now? I, I watched something about something called the Trinity Build, Building Project. Oh, yeah. And it talked about brownfield funding. So yeah. let's touch on that a little bit, and then next, whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think I need to share with your, your viewers my um, why I became so um, in love with environmental issues. Again, I told you, I grew up in a big house. I mean, in our backyard, we had a peach tree, we had a cherry tree. I can remember my father, um, he'd bring home fish from the market. He cut off the tails, he cut off the, you know, the heads, and he would bury them around his trees. I'm like, Dad, what are you doing that for? He goes, these are nutrients, it's gonna make that tree, you know? And so we compost, we saved, we did a lot of that stuff. So. I was really in tune at an early age with nature. And then when my I was a freshman in, at Cleveland State University, I took this environmental biology course, which blew my mind. Um, and I had this professor, Dr. Peter Gale, and he told us, he says, look, we are going to go and spend 
three days living on an Amish farm. And I was like, sign me up. I want to go. <laughs> and so the class went, and I remember day one, we set up camp in this barn, and we all had our own sleeping quarters. And he goes, all right, the first thing we're going to do, he gave us a piece of paper, and on the piece of paper, it had like 100 items on there. He goes, we're going to do a scavenger hunt. And the person who finds the most things in nature will... Um, will be scored on that. So one of them was like, find a maple leaf, find clover, find dandelion, find um, a lily, find, you know, a pine needle, all these different things, and uh, find mushrooms. And then you checked it off and you got scored. I remember, I think I found like 50 of the 100 things, you know, about half of them, which right. was in the higher half we had yeah. an hour to do this okay it was quite difficult and the professor had a masterful way of integrating uh all of those items that we were looking for and saying now you're going to get to meet this amish family and we're going to sleep in their barn and you're going to see how they are in tune with nature that they know that if you take care of mother earth she'll take care of you yeah and so um, that is really where I then uh, spurred my passion and love for environmental issues. And then when I got elected to city council in 2002, uh, we worked really hard to create the Cleveland Eco Village. Pastor T, you might have seen those signs all over and around mm -hmm. your church, yeah. Eco Village. And so we worked to um, create a, a little uh, neighborhood uh, on the west side of Cleveland that we educated all the residents who lived in there about the advantages of gardening, composting, walking, healthy living, recycling, um, and building high energy efficient homes. Well, during that whole process, I was learning a lot, I was reading a lot. And then when I got active with the National League of Cities, they um, asked me, and they knew my history and background, they said, Councilman, we need somebody who can testify in front of Congress around the reauthorization of the Brownsfield program. Mm -hmm. Brownsfield program is a federally funded program that gives municipal governments millions of dollars to clean up old contaminated sites. An example would be, say, a former junkyard that's no longer a junkyard. Cars sit there on that site mm -hmm. and heavy metals mm -hmm. leak. Yeah. Oil, they leak into the ground. We got to clean that up. And so the site you mentioned, the Trinity site, um, was an old abandoned building in my ward uh, that uh, was abandoned for some time. People were breaking into that building. And what was initially uh, became a safety matter because people were breaking into it, um, we took it over, later evolved into an environmental issue. Okay. And I'll share that story. The uh, uh, We were working closely with the Ohio EPA and the uh, U.S. EPA. Uh, each state has their own division of the Environmental Protection Agency, and then you have the federal government, which has one. Well, working with them, we said, you know, this building is obsolete. It's uh, falling down. We want to demolish it. And the EPA said, all right, go ahead. It's the right thing to do. They gave us their approval. 
and we took down the building and we wanted to just make the land available for a new uh, development at some point in the future. Well, the EPA came in, followed up, did some testing in the ground. They do what's called core sampling. Uh -huh. They determined that there was arsenic on site. Mm -hmm. And then the EPA said to the city of Cleveland, they sent us a letter and said, you must remediate this and clean it up. And so we brought in consultants, we looked at it. It was about a $6 million cleanup effort. When I went to Congress, I based my whole testimony around the city. We're doing the right thing. We're trying to remediate a safety matter. We determined it became an environmental matter. And now you want to sue us? We didn't cause the issue. Right. And so the EPA, um, after my testimony, realized that we were um, we were uh, doing a good thing. Mm -hmm. so they, they indemnify the city, which means hold the city harmless, that we weren't liable for that. But also they said, we will work with you and use our attorney general's office to go after the original polluter of that site and make them pay for the cleanup. It was an old former aluminum factory, which made aluminum, which is a highly toxic mm -hmm. material. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we were able to get a grant from the EPA. And today, that Trinity site, you might have seen it, Pastor T, mm -hmm. it's the new dog kennel. Yeah, I went there. We had a tour. I um, went to NLDP, Neighborhood Leadership Development Program, and we had a tour and we went there. And it's an amazing facility now amazing facility so my last question then we're gonna go with your question you're the councilman of war 15 correct yes ma'am so what all does that encompass What sure. all does that encompass? so um the war primarily goes from lake erie to i-90 and my border begins at the mouth of the cuyahoga river where a place is called whiskey island so that's right where ward 15 begins and i go all along the lakefront west to the city of Lakewood. So I have the whole west side of Cleveland's waterfront. Um, when you get north of the shoreway, it's primarily west 50th to west 117th, everything north of, of uh, I-90. All right, so that's Cadell, Edgewater, Detroit Shoreway. Currently yes. I'm on a steering committee and we're talking about merging those communities, right? And I think that it's an awesome idea, but what is your take on merging those three communities to have one CDC? Yeah, well, you know, I funding is the biggest obstacle. Uh, most local development corporations receive their funding from two sources, the federal government and then the city of Cleveland. My first year on city council, Pastor T, uh, the city received about $40 million that could be distributed into communities to do good things. And primarily the majority of that money went to local development corporations. Uh, this past year, it was only $23 million. So it's nearly been cut in half. And organizations need to think about how can they collaborate? How can they work harder and be more efficient with shrinking resources? Um, the funding community and foundations are looking for organizations that are willing to collaborate with multiple neighborhoods. Um, I'm actually in favor of the merger. I think it's a, a brilliant and smart thing to do because 
The majority of CDCs that are standalone by themselves, they can't generate the necessary revenue. And over time, um, they're going to either close or um, not be able to deliver a high quality level of service that the community really deserves. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for your take on that. So now, what, what do you want to talk about? <laughs> well, I'll share with you, there are three major policy initiatives that I've been working on that I'd really love to see your, uh, to educate your, your viewers on the work that we're doing. Um, uh, one involves, um, so I'm working on a safe leave policy. I'll tell safe you. Safe leave? You said safe leave? leave safe leave. Okay. Um, I'm working, uh, and so the safe leave policy, I've been working on this for almost a year now. It's, uh, it would be a law in the city of Cleveland that would protect victims of domestic violence, sexual abuse, or sexual assault, that they would have a job protected status. So we have 8,000 employees in the city of Cleveland. And you know, being a pastor, you know, you know, you, 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 Super T, you probably hear this all the time from your parishioners. You know, you're counseling them, you're giving them advice, they're in a bad situation. You could tell they're battered or they're abused, and they don't want to share that information. Um, same goes when, they're, when they work. Um, they don't want to share it with their boss. Often they will miss appointments to go see a doctor or go to a court hearing if they want to get it like a temporary protection order or to go see a psychologist, you know, if they don't need to go mm -hmm. see somebody because of their abuse. Uh, they won't go and do that for fear of thinking they might get fired from their job. Mm -hmm. What a safe leave policy does, it protects a job protected classification and status that you will be protected and can't be fired from your job um, if you go to one of these sanctioned uh, appointments. There's a protocol, you have to let your HR person know, but, but it gives a reassurance to that victim who the last thing they need to think about when they're struggling, you know, they got two kids at home and you're with an abusive spouse, um, the last thing you, you know they want to do is risk losing their job. Now they have no income, so they can't move out or they can't start a new life. So we're creating a safe leave policy I've been working with um, uh, the Domestic Violence and Child Advocacy Center, um, the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center, and the Cleveland Legal Aid Society are helping me with the research. We're gonna introduce this legislation um, probably in the next month or two. Um, it's supported by the mayor's office. I have many of my council colleagues who are supportive of it. My hope is by the end of this year, uh, we will have passed this legislation. So come January 1 of next year, it becomes law that all these uh, employees are protected. So my question is, is that like, it wouldn't fall under FMLA? So FMLA would not encompass that or is it like in adjacent or in collaboration with FMLA? It, it's very similar to FMLA. Um, FMLA explicitly does not call out that if you are a, a victim of, there's a criteria, uh, but there, that if you're a victim, say, of, 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 of domestic violence, mm -hmm. and 
what we're trying to do is give reassurance because so many of these victims, the vast majority of them, they're underneath the radar. Uh, they don't share their information. There was a national organization that did a study that's affiliated with the Domestic Violence Center that said on average about 137 hours are um, uh, individuals who are going through um, either lose because they, uh, they, they've used up their sick time wow. or their vacation time. Wow. And so what we want to do is tell somebody, look, you can use your sick, you can use your vacation, but if you want to just leave, a safe leave, you, you can come back and you'll have your job. Okay. And so, so that's what we're trying to create. That's awesome. I think that's awesome. And it's much needed because, you know, um, people that experience domestic violence, um, sex trafficking or whatever, you know, experience trauma. So with that trauma, you know, yes, the bruises could probably heal, but mentally I still have that trauma. So I can come to work, but mentally I'm not there. So I'm no good to anybody anyway. So I think the safe leave policy is a wonderful thing to incorporate in what everything else is going on. Yeah, appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as you correctly say, Pastor T, you know, if you can get through a bad situation and now you're out of that abusive relationship, sometimes it might take years, multiple years of going to see a psychologist um, or a doctor who a professional who can help you deal with those issues. It might take years. And if you don't have the vacation time or the sick time and you miss those appointments because of work, uh, you know, I think really that, again, that kind of speaks to the soul of the city that you say that we value our employees, that we're willing to do this for you. Um, that's that, you know, it's been very rewarding to work on this policy. That's good. That's good. Awesome. What's your next initiative? So the other uh, major initiative I've been working on, is, and I've been working on this for over two years now, it's called Vision Zero, um, two words, Vision Zero. And the, the effort was really started in the late 80s in uh, Sweden. And the country started this effort because they noticed that there was a high percentage of residents of that country who were dying as a result to being hit either on a, either walking or bike riding. And now you know there are many more Americans who are getting on their bikes. They're they're going to the store. They're going to work. They're using bikes much more, and, and primarily a lot of low-income people who don't own cars. That's their only mode of transportation. So it started to catch on after Sweden started this initiative. Um, I'll explain in a bit what the concept is about. Um, and then in the early uh, in the late 90s, some cities in America started to adopt some of these practices. <clears throat> right now, there's about 25 cities in, in the country that have uh, Vision Zero's initiatives. And there's, it's, it's a pretty simple goal that we're working to uh, create a system because it's more than just transportation. It's education. It's enforcement. It's... Um, looking at the data and the research. It's our fleets and our vehicles. Um, uh, and it's our engagement. How do we engage people around these issues? Uh, <clears throat> to get to a point at some point where we could say we have zero 
fatalities on our city roads. Wow. And, you know, we lose too many people right now to automobile uh, uh, collisions with cars or with people or with uh, cars and bikes. Uh, you know, people want to drive faster and they don't realize that the consequences uh, that it has. So we formed our working group in January of 2018. We have a task force that meets every six weeks. We have five subcommittees that are working in different areas. Um, I kind of rattle them off. Uh, the uh, enforcement committee, how can we make sure we enforce our municipal laws? The education and outreach, how can we get out into the community and educate people on the proper traffic laws? Uh, some people might be familiar with safety towns, how you teach young people. Oh, there's a stop sign. You have to walk. You have to look both ways. Mm -hmm. um, so the education and outreach. We have a fleets and vehicles. You know, how can we educate those who are driving our buses and our trucks to look out for other pedestrians? Um, uh, but probably the most important working group is our data and evaluation. And one of the tragic things that we found out is over, uh, we did a map of every street in the city of Cleveland. There are 10,000 streets. And we mapped out streets that have high collisions or fatalities on them. Uh, or they're not called, I'm sorry, not collisions, crashes. We make the, use the word crash. Um, and we mapped out and called, uh, identified our high crash corridors. And in that area, it's only it's on less than ten percent of our city streets. So it's it's, it's um, high. It's places that it happens more often than not. So almost kind of like when you drive in those blind spots and stuff. And I know that now in the city, we're definitely encouraging more bike lanes and more people are biking. So I think that this vision zero. I love the whole no deaths, zero. You know what I'm saying? It's like, we don't want a certain percentage of it. We want to put policies and procedures in place where nobody is going to be dying because they decided to ride their bike or their moped or skateboard or whatever your other means of getting around that's not a car. Well, the tragic part about it is, uh, Pastor T, is those 10% of the roads that I mentioned to you, the high crash corridor, the vast majority of them are in communities of color. Aww. And so when you get down to that equity issue that we talked about earlier okay. in the show, um, I've been really uh, encouraging and almost requiring our city to think about when we redesign our roads, let's invest money in those high crash corridors so we can save lives. And uh, I'll give you a perfect example. Kinsman Avenue from like 55th to about uh, about 105. Mm -hmm. That stretches road. It's a long straight road, and you know there's a kind of a hill and an incline. Um, it a lot of people have been severely injured and killed on that stretch of roadway. Well, through engineering and design and smart technology and education we can make a difference and save people's lives. And that's what we should be doing as a city. Yeah, I've driven that before, taking my brother over there to the hub housing. And if the sun is coming up, yeah. you can't even see. Right you know, so it's like 
something, even the little things like that. It's like, okay, if you can't see, you need to really slow down because okay. somebody can step out in front of you at any given moment. So it's just those things about being conscious and cognizant of your surroundings. So yeah, when you're traveling um, um, east and the sun is coming up and you're going east, you can't see because the sun is so blaring in your eyes. Yeah. You know, those little things are, are different things to think about. This has been amazing, and we got like five more minutes. So let's get yeah. your last initiative. I, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. You have to come back and be a guest again because I definitely want to talk <laughs> about the equity, right? Because to me, yeah. that's something that I think a lot of people don't understand. We could do a whole 30 minutes on equity alone. But what's your last initiative for the last five minutes? All right. I, I, and, and it speaks to the equity component. Okay, awesome. Uh, I, you know, I've seen in the neighborhood that I represent, you know, around your, your congregation, your parish, your church, that the neighborhood's starting to change. So about a year and a half ago, I formed a working group uh, called the Equitable Economic Development Working Group that is looking at all aspects of how we uh, deal with housing policies in our city of Cleveland from zoning and land use to sales to our current tax abatement policy. And we hired a consultant. They made a recommendation. Uh, city council is getting ready to move and change our policy around tax abatement. There are some neighborhoods in our city that the neighborhoods are um, starting to gentrify. And so do those neighborhoods or do those census tracts really need abatement anymore? probably not or maybe it's a different form of abatement how can we use this program to generate revenue that supports low-income housing so we've been working on that again for oh my gosh a couple years now uh, we're getting ready to roll out a policy and I'm you know really thankful that uh, that the city is is on board with it you know I've been the main driver on the council side but then you know we have strong support from uh, Councilman Carrie McCormick, Councilwoman Phyllis Cleveland, uh, Councilman Tony Brancatelli. So we're going to come up with some policy and hopefully by the end of this year, redo our tax abatement policy and some of our other land use policies that really will make sure that we look through an equity lens when we do housing because the best neighborhoods in the world are mixed income communities. And that's what we're striving and working towards. Yeah, and I love the whole thought of mixed income community because when you have people that are in mixed income communities, it helps primarily the children. I can see, yes, my mom is here and she's a single mom and, and there's three of us and what have you. But if I can look across the street and my, my neighbor's dad is a doctor you know, and down the street and my neighbor's mom is a nurse. And then that just creates something in me that I wouldn't see if we were all in the projects, if we were all not working and we all. So I think that's a, a wonderful initiative. That's called the Equitable Economic Development. Yeah, Equitable Economic Development Task Force. I love that. I love that. That's amazing. And I will tell you that uh, Jenny Spencer is a part of our task force uh, as, you know, the managing director of Detroit Shore. She's been very heavily involved. So we have uh, CDC directors, community development directors, council people, um, people from housing organizations uh, like Cleveland Housing Network, uh, CMHA, uh, Eating Corporation. So 
people who are doing good work to help people uh, and give them a good roof over their head. That's awesome. Well, Councilman Matzon, I just want to say thank <laughs> you, and you are doing a fabulous job. Thank but this you. last two minutes that we have, is there a call to action? You want to give out your contact information if anybody wants to contact you. Yeah. The two minutes is yours. It's your two minutes. Great. So two things, uh, and I'm going to lead not with myself. It's about the community. Uh, we really need help at the Greater Cleveland Food Bank. Uh, I want those who are watching right now, if you're listening to me, I want you to call if you can volunteer or donate items. Uh, the Greater Cleveland Food Bank's phone number is 216-738-2265. 216-738-2265. Call the Greater Cleveland Food Bank, sign up. Even if you can't give, you can volunteer. Uh, go down there. They're giving so much food away. There's so many people right now who are hurting. Um, I was talking with the director of the food bank earlier in the week. She says, Matt, we have people who have never received our services ever who are coming here now. They have a family of five. You know, mom's not working. Dad's not working. Uh, the, the stipend from the federal government is just not cutting it. They're not getting workers' comp. They need help. So volunteer, Greater Cleveland Food Bank. I gave you the number, uh, wonderful organization, feeding a lot of people. What other people don't realize is also the food bank supplies food to a lot of churches and outreach ministries that give, give food out to people. Uh, and, and so they really need help there. Um, lastly is uh, my phone number at my ward office is 216 664 4235. If anyone wants to contact me or reach me, even if you don't live in my ward, we have, I have very talented staff. We're ready to help you and reach out. Um, I'm so thankful that I have Pastor T in Ward 15 and on my board because uh, I always light up when I see you and you're just, uh, you're just so wonderful and we're so thankful for having you. Thank you so much, Councilman Zone. What a wonderful show. We appreciate, you, we appreciate you guys for tuning in today. This is Christian Networking Entrepreneurs, where we showcase emerging entrepreneurs, small businesses, and community leaders. And remember, if you don't network, you don't work. So it's important to network. Thanks again, Councilman Zone. We appreciate you and have a wonderful day. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye.